Glad to have you here this morning. Glad that you all set your clocks in the appropriate places and showed up here on time. I know you hear me say this every week, but uh, uh, especially this week, if you'd like to borrow a Bible, raise your hand. Nothing's going to be on the screen this week, uh, so you probably want to follow along with us. Just raise your hand. If the ushers will bring you a Bible. You can follow along, and then you can just leave it in the pew when you're done. Our prelude to revival begins this morning and continues on tonight and every day uh, until Friday. Tonight, our church planner, our first church planner that we sent out to Minnesota, will be flying in this afternoon to preach tonight at 7. Uh, tonight, we'll have a time of uh, worship and prayer and preaching. So I want to encourage you to come to that. It's going to be great. And then we start our morning sessions early, early, early tomorrow at 5.30 in the morning at JJ Java. Uh, the, the directions are all listed somewhere in your bulletin. JJ Java at 5.30. And just to let you know, it's okay to come late. If you're not there exactly at 5.30, it's okay. We're going to pray for about 45, 50 minutes, and then we're going to hear some preaching from God's Word. So let me just encourage you to come to that. And then on Friday night, we are going to have baptisms. If you've not been baptized as a believer, it is the first... Uh, simple act of obedience to believe and be baptized. We want to encourage you strongly to be baptized. It's the easiest command in the Bible to obey. Uh, You just, yeah, it's not that hard. So let me encourage you, if you've not been baptized, to come talk to me or or email Pastor John. So far, we've got a few being baptized, and we'd like for all those who are believers who have not been baptized to be baptized. You know, I've been thinking about this sermon at the start of Prelude for a long, long, long time. So this has been with me a long time. But the material we're going to look at this morning is not Proverbs. And it's not, it's not going to be as easy for you to take in on a variety of levels. Um, but I believe it's the message God has for our congregation to kick off prelude. And so we've got to really cry out to God from to open our hearts and our, our ears to hear him in response. So let's go to a time of prayer. Father, we thank you that so much you have revealed yourself to us. You have, you have spoken your word to us. We, we, it's not like we, have, we don't have knowledge of you. You've revealed yourself to us. So we're asking that this morning um, that you would help us to focus on what you're trying to tell us. Uh, help us to hear from you. Wake us up physically because a lot of us are just tired. And, and especially wake us up spiritually. We ask that you would give us a greater focus on who you are and that we would be excited about being joyful and happy in you, that you would do a work this morning that we may not even be expecting, and may this be the start of something big in people's lives this week. Do something now, we beg you, because, Lord, if you do not speak, if you do not open our ears and our, and our hearts to respond, we'll just, gonna just, just fall on us like a big thud. So, Lord, we really want to hear from you now. So speak your truth and enable us to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, try to track with me if you can. We are starting off by talking about the glory of God. And when we talk about the glory of God, you've got to say, well, what is the glory of God? I want to explain it so kids can understand it. So adults, if you don't understand it, I'm sorry. Here we go. So kids can understand. What is the glory of God? 
When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it often talks about this, this bright light surrounding God. That when he shows up on the scene, it's this bright light that surrounds him. So it comes in the Old Testament bright light. And in fact, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be a sun because God will give forth, his glory will give forth light. So that's one aspect of talking about the glory of God. But when theologians talk about the glory of God, they also talk about God in his fullness. When they talk about God in his fullness, they mean all of his attributes combined and expressed. Are you with me there? All of his attributes combined and expressed, his holiness, his righteousness, his wrath, his love, all of these attributes of God combined and expressed make up his glory. And if we talk about the glory of God, we mean God and all of his awesomeness, all of his magnificence, and all of his beauty. All right? God in his fullness. Are you with me so far? The glory of God. God in his fullness. Get this. The Bible says consistently that God made you. He made humans to bring him glory. All that means is that in all that we say and do and think, we are to, in a sense, be pointing to God, showing how glorious he is, how valuable he is, how worthy he is. And when we live our lives caught up in God and his ways, we're saying, you're worth something. We believe you're valuable, and we want others to see how valuable you are. And so God created humans to be caught up in his glory and to point as if he exists and that he is valuable. Are you with me so far? I think you are. Unfortunately, as you may know the story, humans, all humans, all of humanity, has failed to glorify God appropriately. Rather than giving glory to God, we've exchanged that glory and inverted it upon ourselves. And now we're seeking our own glory and our own praise. That's, that's the story of the fall of human beings, of sin. We have inverted and exchanged the glory of God for our own glory. That's the story. But the Bible also teaches that throughout history, God has always had a faithful remnant. A remnant means a, a group of people who he calls his own that give him praise and glory and honor. And you'll see this remnant throughout the Old Testament, this faithful remnant who actually wants to, to praise and get caught up in God and his ways and shine forth his ways to the earth. And as we are sitting here this morning in 2013, as those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, you're part of the faithful remnant now in this generation where you want to praise and give glory to God and get caught up in his ways, not perfectly, but you would say, yes, with your life, you want to glorify God in all that you do. But sometimes, if you've ever read the Bible before, but sometimes God's people can fail to give God glory. Sometimes God's people fail to be preoccupied with him and his ways. And I'm just wondering, are you going through a season right now where you're just not that interested in God? You're just not really thinking much about him and what he's doing and, 
If you could describe your life right now, I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many of you would say right now, you're kind of just indifferent, maybe spiritually numb, a little sluggish, not really interested in God and his glory. And I go through these seasons as well where we just say, you know what, something inside of me is off because right now I just don't care too much about God or his glory. Now, in the Old Testament, when God's people weren't interested in his glory, you know what he would do? He would send prophets to them. Yes, prophets that would bring the heat of God's word to wake them up. The heat and the hammer of his judgment to wake them up. So they'll start giving him glory more. So he'd bring the heat because his people were into all types of sin. They were into idol worship. They were into sexual morality. They were into greed. They were treating the poor uh, terribly. And so God would send his hammer and heat through his prophets to wake his people up. And if you've been thinking about the last six weeks, we've been talking about these gross, blatant, in-your-face sins, the seven deadly sins. And, and the, the fact is that some of you, I don't know who you are, but you're failing to glorify God because you're in blatant, gross sin of sexual morality, greed, whatever it is. It's like in-your-face sin is what you're into. You're failing to glorify God. But not most of you. And that's why I believe this morning God does not want me to bring the hammer of God's disappointing wrath to you through the Word of God. Because I don't believe, I know a lot of you, unless you're sneaking around doing foolish things, I don't believe that most of you are in blatant, habitual, in-your-face, gross sin, kind of the hating God type stuff. I don't believe most of you are into that. But I do see in your lives like I said, a mine as well, a disinterest, a sluggishness, a dryness. Eh, kind of like I just don't really care right now. I, I see that in you, and I feel it in me. And it's not all of you, not all of you, no, 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 not all of you, but I see it in many of you. And I have a question for you. What's the reason for that? You're not in blatant sin. No, you, you love the Lord. What's the reason for the sluggishness, the indifference, the ah, apathy? What's, what's the reason for that? And I've been praying about this. And I said, Lord, can you, can you put the finger in my life? What is it? Can I, can I put the finger on the issue in your life? And, and it won't apply to all of you, but I think it's going to hit a lot of you, and it's not going to be too complex. I think, if I can put my finger on the reason that many of us fail to glorify God with our lives right now, it's this simple thing. Are you ready? God is simply not a priority. There, I said it. You are simply just preoccupied with other things. You are just focused on other things right now. And you love the Lord, but right now, you don't have time to seek him. You don't have time to seek his ways. I mean, you'll do it when you get some time to get around to it. But right now, it's simply not a priority. And I know you're tracking with me because you know the reality in your life. Not all of you, but a lot of you. It's, it's your, that's true, right? Right now, where you're at, you've got a lot going on. 
And God, he's kind of back here, his way's back here. But he's just not a priority right now. Did you know there was another group of people in the Bible who were in the same, same, going through the same stuff. They weren't in blatant sin. They were a faithful remnant. But something happened where they just got their priorities out of whack. And God sent a prophet to them to stir them up. And as we start prelude this week, I believe it's God's will that we get and hear from this prophet, from God, to stir us up so that we will glorify him with our entire lives and be caught up and consumed with him. So let's turn to the book Haggai. Did you even know there's a book called Haggai in your Bible? I'm wondering if you can even find it. And if, that's, if you can't, I, I mean, look at the table of contents. Do not be ashamed. And if your neighbor finds it, ask them to find it for you, all right? Do not be ashamed. Haggai. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on Haggai. Many of you probably have never even read Haggai. But I believe as God has spoke to the faithful remnant back then, he's going to speak to us this morning. We're going to have to do some work this morning because Haggai is not the Proverbs. Here we go. Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Whoa. Just totally lost me and most of you, right? Like, what is... I've been trying to explain this to my kids this week because I want them to get it and I want you to get it. So let's just break it down really, really easy, okay? Talking to the Israelites. Where do the Israelites live for the most part in the Old Testament? Let's just really simplify it. Let's just say Israel, right? They live in Israel. Were there ever times where the Israelites in the Old Testament did not live in Israel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Remember that time they were in Egypt for a really long time? Remember that? Disregard that. There's another time where they were, they were in sin, idol worship, and God took the, many of them from their land to the land of Assyria. Okay? But there was another time where God just kind of shut the whole thing down and took the rest of them to Babylon. This is really simple. Babylon. Now, the remnant in Babylon, bunches of them, were there about how many years? 70 years, okay? They were there 70 years, and eventually, uh, uh, over the empire, someone rose to power and said, okay, I'm going to let you go back to your land, and I want you to go back to your land, and when you go back, I want you to kind of restore it, build the walls, and rebuild the temple. And so, uh, the, 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 it's like, who wants to sign up? Most of them did not want to go back to the land, but there was a faithful remnant stirred up by God of 50,000, not many at all, 50,000 made the trek back to the land. So they get back to the land, and while they're back in the land, they are so pumped up for the Lord, they're so excited to be back in the Holy Land, that when they get there, the first thing they do is they built an altar. Because they want to start worshiping the Lord again. We're back, let's build the altar. And then they started laying the foundation of the temple in the second year they were there. They're so excited. Then, unfortunately, these neighbors, that are very terrible neighbors, come along And they incite a lot of problems, and they shut the work down. 
No more building the temple. It's done. The, the work shuts down. So get this. They're back in the land, 50,000 of them. By the time of Haggai, the work on the temple has been shut down for 16 years. No work's been done on it. One day, God sends Haggai. Come on, go talk to them. And he goes and talks to the political leader, Zerubbabel, and the spiritual leader, Joshua. And this is what the Lord says through Haggai to the people. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So after 16 years of work stoppage, the people say it's not the right time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And I'm sure at that time, the people had many excuses. They could have said, it's an economic issue. We're in a, our economy's in a slump, which was true. They could have had the excuse of, we need to continue to settle ourselves in our own homes. Perhaps that's true. Or they could have said, you know what? We just don't want opposition again. And basically they're saying, it's not the right time to start building the house of the Lord. And I know that many of us could say that as well. You say, right now is not the right time to start investing in the work of the Lord. Many of you have just started school here, or you're cranking out the studies, and you're saying it's just not the right time to be involved in the work of the Lord. Or maybe you're really caught up in your work, or you're starting to crank out kids, or maybe, maybe you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and that takes so much time. You know what I'm talking about. And so you just, there's just no time to get involved with the work of the Lord. Maybe later in another season of my life, I know a lot of you say that, later, later, later. Right now is not the right time. Just not the right appropriate time to get involved in the work of the Lord. Okay? That's what they were saying. God pushes back. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a, a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So God kind of shoots back and plays on this thing of time. And he says, you know what? You seem to have plenty of time to build these sweet paneled houses. And you won't even work on my temple? Basically, God's saying, it's not a time issue. It's a hard issue. Look, jump down to verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, you looked for much, and behold, it came a little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, look at the last part of verse 9. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So they have plenty of time to work on their own house, but not on the house of the Lord. Once again, it's not a time issue, it's a heart issue. You see, what they were, basically what they were doing, they're saying, look, we can go to temple every Sabbath, and we can make sacrifices on these altars. It, it, the, it, everything's in ruins, but at least we have the altar, and then we can go back to our house and work on our houses and busy ourselves with our own lives. And so they were content with the frequency of temple worship, but they just kind of didn't care much about this junky, ruined temple. And, and I just think about many of us, we can show up frequently on, on Sunday mornings and we can worship the Lord, but for the rest of the week, pretty much there's a lot of things that are in ruins that we are ignoring. Like how many of you right now would say that your spiritual life, your walk with the Lord, is, is basically 
in ruins. But you don't have time to deal with it. And for those of you who are cranking out kids, as many of you know, we have six kids. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's so much going on. For those of you, your parents, you're like, oh, we have so much going on. And, and during this busyness, you're neglecting to invest Jesus in your kids because you're saying it's just not the right time. And for those of you who just got married, you'll just be, you know, you know, praying together, investing Jesus in one another. You're like, it's just not the right time. And we just keep using this excuses of time. You, you go to work, and you're supposed to do your, your work for the glory of God and love people and invest in them, invest Jesus in them. You're like, yeah, but it's, it's just not the right time. I've only been there eight years. It's just not the right time. And, and on and on and on we go that God has called us to these specific areas in our lives to invest in his work, whether it's in the church or in the world, and we're all sitting back saying, you know what, God, right now is not the right time. I don't have the time. I'm, I'm busy doing my own thing. And basically what we're saying is that, God, right now, you are not a priority. James Boyce has called this problem here inverted priorities. You get this inverted priorities. So instead of giving glory and praise to God... We've swapped it around, and we're concerned with our lives, what's going on with us, our advancement, our glory, our praise. Well, God's not done with them. Verse 5. He says, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He wants them to stop and actually think about what they're doing. Instead of making the Lord's house a party, they've become indifferent. Think about it. This is 50,000 people who came back with zeal for the Lord. And whatever has happened over these many years, they're just uninterested in the work of the Lord. I would love to just be Haggai before you right now and say to you from the Lord, consider your ways. I'm not asking you to consider your beliefs because many of you have great doctrine. But what are you doing with what you believe? Consider your ways. What is going on with your priority priorities? What are you doing with your time? Where are your interests lying? Consider your ways. Is the way that you're living your life, I'm not talking about your beliefs, but the way you're actually living your life, is it showing that God has value to you, that you're interested in bringing him glory? Consider your ways. You may think it's no big deal on how you're living, but there are consequences to the way we live. And there are consequences during Haggai's time, and there are consequences during our time. Look at some of the consequences of their their negligence. Jump at verse 6. Look at some of the stuff. It says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Jump to verse 9. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. The Israelites, can you imagine this? They worked hard, but they had little return. There, there was a drought in the land. There was no stuff growing up. And so inflation was driving everything up. It's like they're putting money in bags with holes. Basically, what is happening is here is the Lord is trying to get their attention. Since they neglected the building of his house, he, in a sense, has neglected them. And I know many of you are prospering materially. So perhaps he's not trying to get your attention in that area. But for all of your busyness and all of your activity, I'm wondering how many of you feel this dryness and drought of the soul. For all your busyness and all of your activity and all the things that you're doing with your lives, I'm wondering how many of you feel unfulfilled. For all your busyness and all your activity at this time in your life, during this season, I'm wondering how many of you feel distant from the Lord? If that's you, I think God in his grace, he's not being mean, he's not being angry at you. I think he's trying to get your attention. He's saying, hey, pay attention. There's something bigger going on here than just you and focusing on yourself. And maybe right now, he's just trying to get your attention. He's not bringing the hammer. He's not bringing the wrath. He, he wasn't deporting them. He wasn't taking them off with hooks through their mouths off to a foreign land as in days gone by. He brings them a drought. He tries to wake them up. And maybe that's the same he's doing for you. He's not going to start putting boils all over your body, striking your home, you know, all that calamity. No, he's just trying to wake you up through some subtle conviction and dryness of soul that something is just not right. Something's off. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and, and bring wood and build the house. They already had wood. wonder what happened to it. Maybe it's the paneling on their walls in their own homes. They don't have wood anymore. Maybe it's all rotted. Go get some more. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Well, let's just stop and ask the obvious question. What does God need a house for anyway? Can a house or a temple really contain God? What's the big deal about building his home? Come on, God, you're God. You don't need a house. So what if this junky temple's all destroyed? It's no big deal. You're God. Why does it matter? Well, see, get this. During this time, the temple was significant because it represented God's presence with his people and God's relationship with his people. And so if you were an Israelite during this time and you had a broken temple, a broken temple represented a broken relationship with the Lord. You do not want a broken temple. Because it shows that there's something off with your relationship with God, that he allowed destruction to come upon it. So since they're back in the land, they need to rebuild that temple, no matter what opposition they face, because if they rebuild it, God gets the glory. It shows that he is valuable. He is worthy. There's great worth in this relationship with his people. They need to show that they care. 
and they're to make the priority of building his temple to bring him glory. And you may think, well, why does God care about my personal spiritual life? Why does he care if I'm leading my family? Why does he care if I'm reaching out to your does Why does God so concerned about me being involved in his work? Because he wants you to bring his glory. And when you start investing in what he says is important, you're showing, okay, God, you are valuable. Your glory is worth it. I want to invest in it. And that brings him praise and glory. He's trying to stir them up. Now, if you ever read the Old Testament, when God brings a rebuke of prophets in the Old Testament, for the most part, I don't have percentages, but for the most part, when God brings a rebuke of prophets in the Old Testament, do the Israelites automatically repent? Like every time. Come on. No, 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 no. Most of the time, they don't repent at all. The reason why I love this story and why I believe it's for you is because these people have a soft heart. And I believe you have a soft heart. And these people, they repent. They actually repent. I can't believe they do. Look, look at, look at verse 12. They responded. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, all of them. Oh, circle it in your Bible. You can even circle it in the pew Bible. I don't care. They obeyed. You see that word, obeyed? Obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. What does that mean they feared him? Well, they feared him, that they understood their priorities were off, that this led to repentance and and movement in the right direction. This is awesome. Remember, God's not here to scream and yell at them, bring the judgment. He's just saying, look, repent. And they do. And I'm confident that that you will as well, that, that if it applies to you today and you say my priorities are off, I'm confident that if God's spirit dwells in you, that today you repent and you'll say, absolutely, something's off. I need to figure out what that is. And I want to reorder my priorities. I'm confident that you'll fear the Lord and obey. I'm confident. No hammer of judgment today. I'm confident. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year, of Darius the king. So God stirs them up. He assures them of his presence. And look at verse 14 again. Look at it again. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. It's like this. It's like this. The people repent, and then God, I mean, not not that God wasn't a part of that repentance, but they make this movement of repentance, but he keeps stirring them up with power and zeal to start doing his work. And you may come in here so flat and bland and apathetic this week, but if you make the decision today that you want to start making the Lord a priority, you'll be surprised how he starts stirring you up. He starts making your mind think his thoughts after his word. He'll start stirring your affections to care for him. He'll start stirring your hands to go out and do 
do his work. We're asking for a supernatural move of God in your life this week where he stirs up your soul, where you may just be feeling yucky and dead and numb, but by the end of the week, you are, you, you are you're in a sense, a different person because God has stirred you up as he stirred up his people in the Old Testament. Lord, stir us up again. Well, they started working, but things didn't go so well. <laughs> Let's check it out. Verse 3 didn't go so well. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. So they start working, and then look at the results. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So get this. Some of the old-timers that were back in the day of Solomon's temple saw Solomon's temple, all of its glory. They still see them starting to rebuild this, this temple, and they're like going, this is a piece of junk. And when they started building it 16 years ago, it says that when the, the old-timers were building it, they just started crying. This is a piece of junk. Compared to the old temple, this is nothing before our eyes. This is just junky. I started working for the Lord, and man, nothing has gone right. What a disappointment. And the same will happen with us. We start to step out in faith and start to engage in the work of the Lord. Do not be surprised if you face setbacks. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you're here this morning and and you're this guy and you're like, I need to start leading my family spiritually. You've not prayed or read the Bible with your family ever. And you're convicted that you need to lead them spiritually. Don't be surprised if your wife pushes back. Don't be surprised if your kids roll their eyes. Don't be surprised. There's going to be disappointments. If you start caring for people at work and you want to love them and serve them, maybe share Christ with them, don't be surprised if many of them will stop talking to you. And for those of you who are called in the ministry, like I was called in the ministry and so excited to preach God's Word, don't be surprised if you have setbacks. I went to my first church in Los Angeles, and you know what? It closed. How about that? Very disappointing. Just because you step out in faith and you make the Lord a priority doesn't mean everything in your life is going to be perfect. You start stepping out, there's going to be challenges. Things are not going to work well. But get this. God says, hey, I'm with you still. I'm still with you. I've not bailed on you. And not only am I still with you, but guess what? What you're doing with your closed church, with your rolling eye teenager, with people snubbing you at work, what you're doing and stepping out in faith and serving me is bringing me glory. No joke. Some of the biggest disappointments in our life, the biggest things that we step out to serve the Lord and it doesn't work right, is bringing glory to God. And that is where we will finish. Verses 6 through 9. Really pay attention to this. This is kind of like the high point of the book. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, 
I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is so amazing. God says, this house you're building, it might not look like much of anything, but this small work is bringing me glory now and it's contributing to greater glory later. He says the latter glory is greater than the former glory. He's saying there's going to be a glory that is associated with this temple that's going to be greater than the temple of Solomon. What is he talking about? All they know is Solomon's great temple, and now they're looking at this junky temple, and they're going, there's going to be greater glory in this piece of junk compared to that? What are you talking about, God? What is he talking about? Don't you wonder? Well, this junky temple they were building was later revamped by Herod. And one day, this young, poor couple named Mary and Joseph. They brought their little boy to be presented in the temple. Remember his name? That was Jesus. And many believe that when it says, if you want to check again in verse 7, when it says, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, some believe the way to interpret that is the desire of all nations shall come in, the desire being Jesus, God in the flesh. And perhaps that's what is happening. Obviously, God in the flesh showing up at the temple is greater glory than they've ever seen, right? But even though that may be a partial fulfillment of this, it doesn't really explain all the shaking of the nations, does it? Does it talk about the shake, the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land? All this shaking kind of talks about and seems like it's talking about end times connotations of the Lord's judgment. So maybe this is talking about a future time. A future time. The Bible talks about a future time when the Lord Jesus comes back. And, and many of us believe that when he comes back, he will set up his reign for a thousand years on this earth. And perhaps he will reign and rule from a reestablished temple. Who knows? And that the nations will stream to the Messiah. The nations will bring their wealth and their praise and their honor to the Lord Jesus. And perhaps that's what it means that there is going to be a future greater glory. And some even believe, no, no, what it's talking about is God with his redeemed people in eternity receiving praise and glory from the nations forever and ever. Hey, I don't know exactly all that it entails, but get this. This is the main point. He's telling them, your work right now in your generation on this temple that looks as if nothing in your eyes is bringing glory to God now and forever. Their work that they thought was so little and insignificant is bringing glory to God in the present time of their lives and in the future, greater glory. And in this generation, this generation has an opportunity, as in all generations, to bring glory to God now and contribute to something that is bigger beyond you, 
greater glory in the future. And for those of you who may think that what you're doing is so insignificant, maybe you're just building into one person. Maybe you're just discipling one person, or maybe you're just doing his work. Very small. No one even sees. No one even knows. No one sees you praying or investing in your kid. No one sees you listening to your roommates or telling you their problems, and you're praying with them at 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, no one sees these things. But God is saying, this small, little, insignificant things in your eyes is contributing to greater glory, both now and forever, which is pretty awesome. My friend is with me here this morning, my friend who was my best man at my wedding. When I got married, he was there, and he was there before, great man of God. But what we used to do back in the day is for many uh, years, we would go and preach and do ministry in the nursing home uh, in Dallas. And when he was done, uh, when I moved out to California, he continued doing the ministry in the nursing home for many years. Now, boy, we could tell a lot of stories from our nursing home days. But a lot of our preaching and ministry, we thought at times, was absolutely pointless. There would be times where people would interrupt us in our sermons with screaming, cussing, yelling, strange hallucinations they wanted to share with us. I mean, there was just the stuff that we saw there was unbelievable. And at times, I mean, Mike, my friend, he's here for Prelude this week, so maybe we can encourage him. He, 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 he was there for years, and for years it just looks like, what is going on here? Is anybody even hearing me? Is, any, is this going anywhere? No matter how small and insignificant your work for the Lord may seem in your eyes, it's bringing glory to God now, and it's contributing to this greater glory later as the nations all stream in and bring praise to him. Like, I don't even know what needs to happen in your life this week. I don't, I don't even have a solution. Have you noticed that during the sermon, I'm not giving any solution on how you need to start reworking your priorities. I don't even know your schedule. I can't figure that out for you, but it starts with this. It starts with the simple act of this morning with you saying, okay, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I have this job. I have this. I have this schoolwork. I don't know, but I'm going to start rearranging my priorities around you and your work. I don't know what that looks like, but there's got to be some shift, some simple shift where we get that we quit inverting things. We quit focusing on ourselves and our glory and say, okay, God, all you, I need to do something different. Show me. And that's kind of the heart I want you to have this week. When you show up to prelude tonight, we're still talking about the glory of God. Say, God, what does this mean? Stir me up. And show up tomorrow as we talk about the Word of God. What does it mean to make the Word of God priority in your life? And show up on Tuesdays we talk about community. What does it mean to make our brothers and sisters priority? And show up on Wednesdays we talk about holiness. What does it mean to start addressing the sins in our lives that keep us from fellowship and communion with Christ? Okay, let's make that a priority. Because some of you have been stuck in your sin, a specific sin. You know what it is. I don't know what it is. You've been stuck there for years, and you're not making it a priority to deal with it. And you say, well, once I graduate, or once my kids reach a certain age, then I'll start dealing with my own issues. No, make that a priority now. And then when we hit Thursday, we're going to start talking about justice and mercy and people are suffering all around us. Are we making that a priority? Perhaps we should. And then on Friday, we're going to talk about gospel proclamation and people knowing Jesus. And boy, we all should be convicted and stirred with love to start making people who don't know Christ a priority. 
So I don't have it all figured out for you, but I tell you this. If you came in here this morning with inverted priorities, I can give you, I don't know if I can do this, but I think I can give you a 100% guarantee or your money back that if you dive into this week, next week when you come back, you're going to be on a different trajectory. You're going to be on a different path on thinking about God and his glory and prioritizing what does it mean to be caught up in the worth of God who's worthy of all of our praise and all our thoughts and all of our actions. So I don't have it figured out for you. That's the path we want to go. That's where we want to head. We want to start there today. And I think the best place to start and the best place to end now is by focusing on Jesus. You ever thought about this? Jesus is the only person who's ever existed to give perfect glory to the Father. And all that he said, all that he did, all that he thought, his whole focus was to give glory to the Father. And not only that, it tells us that he was, in a sense, the glory of God in the flesh, the glory of God we see in the face of Christ. And as he was focusing on giving the Father glory, he took it all the way to the cross. And on the cross, he died for people like you and people like me who've done the swap, where we, instead of giving glory to God, we exchanged it for the glory of ourselves. He died for sinners like you and me. And get this. He's buried and rose again. And the good news is, we call it the gospel, if we put our faith in Christ, not only are we forgiven for failing to give God glory or falling short of the glory of God, not only are we forgiven, but get this, this is awesome. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What this means is that for those of you who are in Christ, who trust in Christ, in Christ, when the Father looks at you in Christ, he sees one that has given God, the Father, perfect glory. Did you even catch that? We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and the Father sees us. He sees us as one who's given him perfect glory in Christ. So not only are we forgiven, but we're clothed in righteousness. That's amazing. And so what we do is we close the service here, and we start thinking about, huh, let's set our minds on remembering Christ. As we start to take this communion, the Lord's Supper together, let's start to be preoccupied with what Christ has done and bringing glory to the Father and catching us up with his greater glory. So what we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to look at this bread. You're going to come and take bread in a moment. And the bread is to remind you of Christ's body crucified. And the wine is his blood shed to turn away the wrath of God and bring forgiveness of sins. And every single person in here, if you are one who has put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you can take this meal. You don't have to be a member of this church. If you are one who's repented of your sins, puts your faith in Christ alone to save you, you can take this meal. But for those of you who are still searching, you're trying to figure things out, you're kind of in this mode where you want to seek God, but you're not quite sure if you're there yet, we ask that you would hold off on this meal and watch something that's about to happen that is very strange. Where else do you have rituals like this where you're remembering someone who died by eating what's something that represents their body or their blood? Like, what, what is this strange thing? 
watch the Christians come and take this strange meal for which we say there's now forgiveness and communion with God. And we offer the forgiveness of sins. It's offered to you as well through the body and blood and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're doing all this to remember him. There's nothing magical going on here. We're remembering him and what he's done for us. Now, if you've not uh, taken communion here before, then don't worry about what to do. I'm not going to explain it all. Just follow the flow of the crowd. You'll figure it out as we, as we do this. But there's one more thing that we do that I need to kind of explain because it may be kind of strange to some of you. In the Bible, it talks about if you're sick, James chapter 5 says, if you're sick, you know, go to the elders. They'll anoint you with oil, and they'll pray a prayer of faith. Now, there's nothing special or magical about the oil. We just pray the prayer of faith. We anoint you. We pray for you if you're sick. And we're going to offer that this morning. But since we're kicking off prelude, we're just kicking off basically a week of prayer, and we're going to do things a little different. So this morning, not only will the elders be available, but the elders and their wives will be praying together. And so if you would like prayer for anything that's going on in your life, maybe you've failed to make the Lord a priority and you just want someone to pray for you and encourage you or there's something going on, some sins you want to deal with, whatever it is, the elders and their wives will be spread out down here. They'll be spread out up top. Just feel free to come up and just whatever's going on, no one's going to make fun of you or anything like that. Feel free to come up and just share what's going on in your heart and what you like prayer for. We just want to start this atmosphere of this week by focusing on the glory of God, the glory of God and the face of Christ. We want to get our priorities set right. So as we enter this communion time, let's just go ahead and pause and enter it in an atmosphere of prayer and worship.